building up godly men for a better tomorrow. This is On the Edge with Ken Harrison, where we inspire men of integrity to put faith into action together. Just before we get into today's episode, we'd like to invite you to subscribe to our weekly devotional group. Just text the two words, Promise Keepers, to 31996. Every week you'll receive a challenging devotional that will inspire you to put your faith into action in the real world. Again, text Promise Keepers to 31996. And now, here's today's show. Hey, I'm sitting here with Alan Phil Robertson, and we're going to talk about some really blatant stuff. You guys' story is raw and it's real, and it's a story of redemption and a father's grace. So, Phil and Al Robertson, man, it's uh, great to hang out with you guys. And Al, you and I have been friends for quite a while now, and we're like two peas in a pod. We are. You grew up in the woods of Louisiana, I grew up in the woods of Oregon, and there's Ultimately, there's not much difference except for we had less bugs than you guys. <laughs> well, I was telling you last night, so I was uh, telling Ken Dad that, you know, where he's from, he's like, you know, there's no bugs there. And I was like, well, you know, when you get out to where Dad lives, if you'll just look at the ground. <laughs> it's moving. It moves. That's right. Our ground moves. There, there's so many things here, and most of it wants to hurt you. Uh, I mean, it's just in its in its nature. Blood sucking insects, a lot. <laughs> I mean, a lot. So I was telling them when you get into a duck blind at a certain time of year, and you do it, you and Dan do it more than any of us. A lot of them wound up wound up in the hospital. These film crews that come from L.A. and New York, <laughs> they would all fly down here and film us in that Duck Dynasty, but they wound up in the hospital because they'd walk up to us and they'd just be pot-marked like they had <laughs> measles and just, just solid. And, and they said, and they looked at us and they said, why is it that we're being eaten up? And I said, you never been around here. We're immune to all that. You, you gotta, y'all gotta go through it. But. Well, Dad's like Dad in the woods is like the uh, the world's most interesting man. Remember from the beer yeah. commercial? It was like things don't bite him just out of respect. You know, <laughs> I mean, he's such a man of the woods. That's what Dan said because they were eating Dan up. They said, "How come all these bu- bugs are getting on me and sucking the blood?" Out? But but they're not lighting on you. I said, you, you, you bathe too much. <laughs> <laughs> so the key is less bathing. That's what tends to do it. Uh, but no, we had a, so there was a show that used to be on A&E. It was called Billy the Exterminator. And uh, when we first, it was before Duck Dynasty. It was, and it was a fairly popular show. And these guys were based in Shreveport, which is not too far from here, about an hour and a half down the road. And they had an exterminating company. So, a and E knew that we were in the talk in the works to have our show, so they had the idea they they were going to get Willie and Dad on Billy the Exterminator. This kind of be a way to introduce these guys who are going to be you know you'll know who they are next year. So that was the idea that kind of hatched behind the plan. So their idea was because you you know reality shows you got to come up with some kind of foundation. They were going to come over here and exterminate one of our duck blinds. Because they're so good at extermination, so their show is set up. They would have this. They'd have a thing screen come up, and it would say, "You know, here's the problem." And then it would have mission, you know, at the bottom of it. And that was kind of they approached it like they were going to fight this problem. And there was kind of some colorful guys. They were brothers, and so it, so at the end of the thing, when the show ended, it would always this thing would come back up on the screen. It would say mission accomplished because they'd gotten rid of the raccoon or the snake out of the little lady's house or whatever they were doing. So they come over here and. 
they go out to one of those duck blinds and they get out there. And of course, I mean, there's snakes, uh, purple tail wasp, red wasp, brown recluse. Were- Cotton mouths too. Yeah, so these are water moccasins. So, oh, so they enter in. So they're filming. So Dad and Willie and I wasn't there for the filming of it, which would have been even funnier. But just watching the show and they were describing it, they said they go in there and they've never heard such cursing in all their life. <laughs> <laughs> when these two guys entered in here, there's a lot of bleeps with that episode. I mean, right? It was just and, and when you watch it, it was beep 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 beep. beep. So this, they come running out of the thing, and one of them, one of the brothers, we found out later, is allergic to wasp stings. I thought maybe you shouldn't be an exterminator. Yeah, I mean, bad. you might have yeah. picked the wrong job. And so they come out with well, this guy's face is swelling up, like we're watching it happen. So end of episode, load him up in the car and head off to the clinic because we got to get some Holy you know cow. stuff in this guy. So so at the end of the episode, it's like here's all the stuff, and they list all the bad things that were in this dope line. And you, all the beeping and the filming of them running out of there. And then, then it says, mission aborted. <laughs> That's awesome. So I just thought, I mean, it was the first time people really ever saw. What they found is purple tail wasp nests, black widows, all kinds of fire ants. They build, they get up on those blinds because those blinds floating on logs. Well, those ants know that. So you got to go down there. What they didn't know was I went down there the evening before they filmed it, (laughs) and I just eased up there to it, and I looked over there, and under the boat run where your boat goes to get in the blind, there were two cottonmouths crawled up there, and there was another one hanging up in kind of a bush about three feet up, was coiled up there, and I went around the other side, and I looked up under the roof, (laughs) and some of those wasp nests were like this. I thought, I told my buddy, I said, we're going to have some fun. <laughs> and boy, when that film crew showed up, the last thing I saw, I put two cotton mouths. I went down a ways and caught them, and I tied them in a, in a bag. I said, in case these are not here, I'll have plants. I can just plant them. So I had the sack of cotton mouths, and they were running that way. I said, hey, watch this. And I dumped the snakes out and took an AR-15. Boop, 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 boop. Blew the snakes all up, you know, and they were just, they said, get out of here. <laughs> so you sold me that we were going to go exploring the property after this. I'm not sure I, I maybe. Well, I'm, I'm saying there's places you can go that, that would be definitely rude, wouldn't you say, Dad? Yeah, yep. It's funny because we were driving out here today, Daddy. And so you get said, used to just not not picking up a board or pushing a don't, boat. Don't lean against a. You, you, you push a boat off the bank over there. You better push it off but and and look under it because there'll be a couple of cottonmouths crawl up there. Well, if you just walk up there and push it up, well, you're bitten like that. So there's a lot of wow. ways you can get snake bitten. You just learn here. how to be careful. We have all the poison snakes in Louisiana, all four kinds. So, Dad, so we're driving out here, and Ken says, "What? we're coming out 34, and he said, what are all those little mounds all along the road? Which is funny because I hadn't even noticed. I looked over and yep. said, oh, those are ants. Fire ants. Fire ants. Because they're just all, wasn't it the whole way out? I didn't realize because it's the time of year where they yeah. go well, in. Well, you're so used to see them. They'll literally right. yeah. eat you up. Well, so speaking of blood sucking creatures, what was it like dealing with New York media? <laughs> That's about the best segue I've ever heard. <laughs> it was, uh, we proceeded with caution. They were irreligious. I mean, and they didn't, uh, 
they had a mindset that was devoid of God. Mm. I think so one of the it was a hassle is what it was. One of the best examples were early on. Lisa and I weren't on the show yet, but the whole family was invited to be on the Today Show. You know, and at the time years ago, I mean, that was a big thing, and the network, of course, is all behind. So the whole family's there. So Matt Lauer, you know, which we know how he turned out to be such an upstanding citizen. So he's interviewing us, and you know, he just—you could tell—he just he didn't like us. He didn't like what we stood for. Is that right? Oh, and and he was his whole interview instead of being like light and funny like the show was. He jumps in about whether the show is scripted or unscripted. Like that was the best he could come up with at the time. Mm. And of course, he's asking all of them about it, and they're like, you know, I don't know. You know, size. So like, can you imagine trying to script me? You know, <laughs> for crying out loud. So, but I thought when it was over, I thought, man, what a jerk. You know, because I thought he should have made this like a Today Show interview for a, a TV show. Instead, he tried to make it like it was a big deal. Mm. So afterwards, I think everybody was a little bit kind of like edgy because uh, we just went through that. And so we did the Kathy Lee and Hoda. You know, they did a little, back then they did the little after, and that really was trying to be light and fluffy. Well, by then, they had everybody's dander up. So they said, now we know you have dogs. Miss Kay's got Bobo. And, you know, they're like, and they said, and they said, what do you think? Do you love your dogs, Mr. Phil? And Dad's like, yeah, we like our dogs. Our dogs are our first line of defense for anybody that wants to rape pillage or maim anybody in our home <laughs> and after the dogs we have ars and, and they, you, you can see that these two women their eyes get this big because they're not sure if he's joking or what you know they're like whoa we just went to um, smith and wesson situation so then they tried to rescue yeah, the, the woman said this is kind of like where the bible and smith and wesson meet <laughs> that's I what said, she's you're close <laughs> so so it was like everybody was like oh boy dad just went off the rails and then so she tries to she's still trying to save it she pivots to Cy, and she's like, now, Cy, what do you think? She asked him a question. He says, hey, I mean, we'd rather have a Bible study, but if a gunfight breaks out, we're ready for that, too. <laughs> What's interesting is the Apostle Paul, by the way, there's a verse for everything. It is a verse for everything. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, and it is to this day. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. It is written. I say that a lot because if someone says, well, I have my truth and you have your truth, mm. I said, well, my truth is written down. It's, it's called a Bible. Where, was, where is your truth written down? This is, these are old writings here. 2,000 years ago, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. You say, they're still scoffing at it. What's this? I'll destroy the wisdom of the wise, God says, way back one of the Psalms. The intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar when it comes to Jesus Christ? Where's the philosopher of this age? We always have a lot of them, no matter what, what era we're in. Uh, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. Hmm. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs. They couldn't get enough of them. Show us another miracle and we'll believe you. Show us another miracle and we'll believe you. But Greeks, Gentiles, 
They look for wisdom. They looking for theological, uh, you know, wisdom and truth. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. To this day, it's the same way. Exactly. You don't see any college professors expounding on Jesus Christ. Not one. They get to that section of history, and they just act like it's not there. Mm. It's amazing. Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than man wisdom. Watch. Brothers, think of you what you were when you were called. Here's God's people, and you see through these TV shows you're talking about, when they look at you and they say, that bunch of redneck, ignorant, watch. Not many of you were wise by human standards. I say with pride, I'm a C-plus man. Someone says, well, aren't you worried about the people that are A's and B's ahead of you? I said, no, I feel good that I'm ahead of the D's and the F's. <laughs> C-plus ain't bad to be in the middle. Not many of you were wise by human standards. That's me. Not many were influential. That'd be me. Not many were of noble birth. That's certainly me. God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. So if you look at it, you say, hmm, even the Bible covers what kind of people come to Jesus and the ones who are like intellectually astute beyond your wildest dreams, for some reason or another, they go within the beginning. There was nothing. Then there was a large explosion. Nothing explodes. Yeah. And bingo, you have a cosmos. To me, it's a stretch. Yeah, the Bible's written by 40 authors or so over 2,000 years with extreme detail on nature, on science, and it all agrees with itself. You yeah. Think about it's Noah's amazing. Ark, right? Some guy, how could he possibly have known if you had every animal in the world it gives the exact dimensions of the ark, the amount of food needed to feed them, and the amount of time they're in the ark, and it all works out. That's your truth, as opposed to somebody who says, well, I've been on the earth for 50 years, so my little tiny wisp of a life, this yeah. is what I figured out. I'll, I'll take scripture. And back. he got his truth rapidly, because no one was saying that's your truth, and, and here's my truth, until about a decade ago, and they started that narrative. Yeah. You say, it's not but 10 years old, your truth and my truth. They yes, say, that's a good way new. to get around the truth. But you look at Well, by the way, to prove your point, so you, you, can, you can go to Kentucky, Lexington, Lexington, Kentucky, and drive north about 45 miles, and they've, they've built that boat. Oh, is that what that is? Yeah, and I've been on it. It's um, unbelievable. I mean, when you're so that somebody took the time to build it by the dimensions. When you, and you look at that sucker when you you drive up there, you're thinking, "What a boat!" Wow. You talk about a boat. Well, I have mean, you seen the Russell Crowe movie? So he had those big stone creatures to help him out. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the sons of God and sons of men, right? They they were stone creatures in the yeah yeah. That was pretty good. No, but it's so. What I'm saying is. If, you know, people that take the time to even recreate what's in the Bible, it, it's incredible. It's amazing. And built you know? it on dry ground, waiting on the, on the rain. rain. That's right. And they're all right. looking at Noah and them saying, you bunch of idiots. <laughs> it only took them 100 you know, years well, to What is it. that? It's a big boat. You're going to need one. They're like, you talking to us? Said, You're going to need one. Yep. There's a big water coming. By his faith, he condemned the world came of heir of righteousness mm -hmm. by his faith. What I was always amazed at is when you read the book of Genesis, 
it only took from Genesis 3 to Genesis 6. Now, I realize that was a good span of time because you read about several generations of human beings. But it took two or three chapters in the Bible before things got so bad that God said, you know. Their every thought. Every thought was wickedness and violence. And you know what's it's interesting? In Isaiah, twice God points out what sounds like he's saying the most righteous men in the Old Testament. And if, if I was, I wish I had memorized the verse, but I wasn't prepared like I'm normally not. <laughs> but um, when we think of well, who are the most righteous men in the Old Testament, if I said name three, we'd probably say Moses and Elijah. and Abraham. Uh, yeah. And yet God says the most righteous men were Noah, Daniel, and Job. Yep. And the funny thing is, you know what Noah, Daniel, and Job all have in common? They all suffered greatly. Yep. Imagine the suffering of seeing every person on earth destroyed. Now you're completely alone. Yep. And imagine the suffering of Daniel being taken captive at 12, castrated, and watching his parents and everybody slaughtered. And we all know about Job and what he went through. So the three most godly men of the Old Testament are not the greatest men. Yep. They're the men that went through the greatest suffering. Yeah, that's, that's a great point. Yeah, one to suffer, and and all the rest of them, he makes plain that they were fallible. Yeah, they made mistakes. Yeah, one of every the, one of them, no matter how great. One you of the most powerful verses in the Bible to me is Job one. I think it's twelve or fifteen, where you know Job just lost all his kids, all his possessions, all wiped out. Bam, bam, bam. Bad news, bad news, bad news. And he fell to the ground. He tore his clothes, and it said he worshipped God. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the in the worst moment of your life, the worst news you could ever hear. He was drawn to worship God, which is what made him such a great man. I mean, who who can worship out of severe pain? And yet, you're right. That's what separates people from you know having some inconvenience and being so upset about it. Versus, my life was just wrecked, but I still know God's in charge. I mean, that's that's the sort of faith we're talking about. You know, which and is humility. Yeah. So, Phil, a question I've always wondered about you. Uh, I don't know if anybody's ever asked you this before. You were at Louisiana Tech playing quarterback. Your backup was a guy named Terry Bradshaw who had a a little bit of success in football. He was decent. Now, when you get in that bar fight, you beat everybody up, you run out into the woods, and you're hiding in the woods. At some point, were you thinking, I'm hiding in the woods, my wife's living in a trailer with my kids, and my backup quarterback is winning Super Bowls for the Pittsburgh Steelers. Like, did that ever occur to you? <laughs> no, but that would have been a good way to maybe speed up my repentance. At the time, you know what's amazing? Uh, that list I gave in Romans one twenty eight and following, if you don't, uh, because they didn't think that it was worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gives them over. That was pretty well where I was. I mean, I wasn't thinking clearly. Way too much booze, immorality. You're like, you just were, were not in a uh, investigative thinking spirit. So uh, the initial meeting was when the preacher came up to the beer joint that I owned and uh, tried to share Jesus with me. I ran him out of there. His final words is he, they were leaving in a cloud of dust. My sister brought him up there. She was handing out Bible tracts in the bar. <laughs> My little sister was, and I told all them old guys about half drunk, leave her alone. She's one of them Jesus freaks. So, but the preacher, Still his, his words on after the first meeting was, 
Uh, I don't think he's ready yet. <laughs> but about a year later, I finally said, what in the world am I doing? I, I said, I'm like a dog chasing his tail. So at 28, I sat down, and I, I had even never heard the gospel, or, or it didn't take. I, I didn't know. When I started looking at the resurrection of the dead, I thought, wait a minute. How in the world did I miss that? Yeah. I said, this almost sounds like, you know, all my sins are going to be removed and I'm going to be raised from the dead. I have God's spirit in me to guarantee all this. I said, this almost sounds like it's too good to be true there, preacher. He said, it probably is too good for us, but it is true. Mm-hmm. I said, let me think yeah. on the, let me think on what you just laid on me here. I never had even heard the gospel. I, I thought the gospel was gospel music on the radio. I didn't know what that Jesus came down in flesh, died for me with bed. I missed it somehow. And I think to Ken's point, Dad, my observation, of course, I was living it at the time. I was just a, a kid. Yeah, you were born pre-conversion. On right. So I was I was old enough. You were to, like eight or nine. Right? Yeah, I was, I was uh, about 10 when Dad came to Christ. And so but I think what drove him that final step, like you mentioned, there were some desperation points that you would think would be enough to get him on his knees. But it didn't happen until he was utterly alone. Because when mom and the three boys were gone, so however long that was, a few months out of dad's life, he was then utterly alone. So at first, I'm sure it was fine because you don't have somebody nagging you. But after a while, when you start looking at this thinking, I mean, I think that's probably what got you to a reflective place where it's like, okay, maybe I need to check this out. And so dad came down here, which is where we were living, Hat in hand to mom is like, you know, I, I want I want my family back. I, I want to get right. But he was so mistrusting because he didn't trust himself because the way he'd been for this 10 years. So he's like, what, what, what can I do? And so then now it circles back. The same guy he ran out of the bar, he invites into our little apartment, and now he's ready to listen. Wow. And, and I think that shows you the difference. You can't – and we've learned this the hard way – People say, well, if you could, if I could just get them to feel, you know, but if they're not willing, if they're not ready, if they're not fully on your knees and you're broken, you're not ready for Christ. That's the problem for a lot of people. They, they're like, they're in some early moment of desperation, but unless you're ready, then even the power of the gospel won't penetrate because your heart's. A lot of them think they're too far gone for God to lift them up. That's right. They erroneously think. I need to get myself cleaned up a little bit. It's like I I converted a doctor, a medical doctor, a few years back. And and before we went down on the river for me to baptize him, he said, I need to say a few things before before you take me down there, Phil. I said, go ahead. So I'm sitting there. So he was looking at the floor, and, and he's seated about six or eight feet from me. So I just was looking down at the floor. And he was looking at the floor, and he began to to confess his sins. He volunteered to do it. Well, about halfway through his confession, because it was lasting a while, so he had a lot of sins, and he was confessing them. Well, after about 10 minutes, I was thinking to myself, I didn't know doctors did all that. (laughs) I said, whoa. (laughs) I mean, I was surprised that a medical doctor would do those type things. And I was thinking, boy, did he ever need converting. And he was. 
Yeah. I saw him yesterday, you know, he'd meet with the brothers. There, oh, yeah. you know. But you're right. Where we meet, we have the, the homeless and uh, they sleep under bridges and wherever and we give them little food kits and stuff and uh, uh, you give them, Miss K gives them cards, you know, so you can go by and get a meal and all. So they come there. Miss K's your wife. And, uh, yeah. yeah. So we got like medical doctors and dentists and, <laughs> and the homeless. Yeah. And everybody's it's a, it's a in, very eclectic in one group. group there, you know. And you say, uh, uh, do the homeless bathe a lot? You say, not that much. So it, it's just, uh, but we're all together. Well, they don't everybody get everybody knows each other. <laughs> but I, it took about probably a year or so. For a few of the homeless coming to Jesus, but then they, but we now most all of them are sons of God, mm. daughters of God. So it's a pretty cool place to be. It's like very simple. Mm. I, I guess you could call it simple. Yeah, it's, uh, a, it's a good work yeah, of our church. Yeah. yeah, and dad, dad and mom do it, which is really good. And I think it's just because of that reflection that dad had. <clears throat> I think it's what's made him so effective through the years with people is because one, he's not, he's not judgmental. I mean, you, you look at a picture of dad. We were one time, again, we were in uh dad spoke at CPAC because he got the like Breitbart award or CPAC's something. CPAC's the really conservative. Right, exactly. Movement. So, and it, looked, it was, it was like a presidential, I guess it was 2015 or so because like there's all these politicians were there with their suits on. And so dad comes walking out. Looking just like he does today, except he had on this old browning shirt he loved to wear that's like 20 years old and hadn't been washed in 20 years. And the best shirt I have on. <laughs> and now it's on a mannequin in the Hall of Fame, which, which we'll get to oh, yeah. unveil <laughs> next month. But So he comes out on the stage, and Steve Bannon was sitting next to me, and, and Bannon re- leaned over to me, and he said, it looks like your dad just walked off the pages of the Old Testament. <laughs> and it did, because the beard was flowing. Nice. You know, he had that old shirt on. He had his Bible. After they heard my speech, they might have started to believe it. <laughs> he, he There's was, 110 million of us that are suffering from the, some kind of sexually transmitted disease. That was his disease, opening line. And <laughs> you're telling me that, you, that we're rocking along here doing great? I said, 110 million? I said, look around. That's one out of every three. And they all were like... <laughs> So my point. <laughs> Somebody said, "Oh no, that guy. He doesn't know what he's talking about. There's not that many. Remember how? Yeah, yeah. So some reporters investigated. They said, "Well, let's see now." The CDC. He's right. Yeah, this, this mathematics and some. <laughs> so so no, because they said there's not 110 million people. There's 110 million cases. And Dad's like, because some of the same people have more than one STD. And Dad's like, I don't. I think you're missing the point. Yeah, what right, I was trying to right, say, you know right. what I'm saying? But it was like, oh, this guy didn't know what he's talking about. So my point is, so so Dad's up there doing his thing, and I'm watching this, and I'm looking around because this is a very political audience, and you got the little young Republicans with their bow ties, and Dad's up there just railing on the STDs, <laughs> but everybody else has got their little polished political speeches. My point is, when people look at that, they think, "Well, this guy, who does he think he is, Moses or something?" But Dad, so he's got this like public persona, but Dad sits down with people. And just talks to them or, or lets them talk, just like he just described with this doctor. And there's no judgment. There's no, you're the worst person I've ever seen. I mean, this guy became a close friend of ours. Why? Because dad didn't judge him. He just said, this is the way to Christ. This is how you find freedom. So that's what I think a lot of people from a public persona miss about dad is it's really just about an open sharing of a life that was changed, a life that was one to immortality, and you can do the same thing. 
And that's the simplicity of the way dads operate. That's why no matter how big of a deal people think we are, it still just comes down to personal testimony of sharing what God did in your life. And here's what it'll do for you. So I, I think that's what has spoken volumes to all the people that have been led to Christ by dad. I think that's just his you coming You take from this him. Bible and you look at it like this, <clears throat> uh, the, a big, thick part, thick part, all the way to right here. Yeah, all the way to right here. Yeah, right here. Look, that's a lot of Bible. <laughs> For those listening, that's about it, probably four inches of Bible. All this right here, all it says is uh, from Genesis to Malachi, Jesus is coming. That's all it says. Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. Start with Genesis 3.15. Three pages inside your Bible. Somebody's going to be born of a woman that will crush Satan's head. You say, who in the world is that? Jesus is coming. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it's just four books. They all say the same thing. Jesus is here. Jesus is here. Jesus is here. All of them recorded Jesus died, was buried and raised from the dead. You turn back in the end of your Bible, watch. Someone says, well, did, did, were they ready for that? Uh, Matthew 16, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples, he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law. He must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter heard him say that, and Peter said, do what? You're going to do what? He said, I'm going to die, be buried and raised from the dead. He doesn't sauce it up. He just says, yep, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to die, be buried and raised from the dead, guys. Peter said, that's never going to happen to you. Jesus said, get out of my way, Satan. What he was saying is he repeated it over and over. I'm going to die. Be buried and raised from the dead. Matthew records it. Mark records it. Luke records it. John records it. So Jesus does that. Acts chapter 1, he leaves and goes back to heaven where he's there to mediate for his people. And you say, he's coming back. Jesus is coming. Jesus is here. You can investigate what he had to say. See if you can come up with any mistakes on his part. Just study the man. If four different people write about my life, you say, you can pretty well investigate and find out who he is. Well, well four did with Jesus, and you're like, mistake-free. What's the possibility if somebody writes about your life, Al, writes your entire story, and they can't come up with one misstep? Pretty amazing. And they spent three years with him every single day. Yeah. So, Look, why don't you just stop? assess the situation, and at least investigate Jesus Christ. I mean, at least your calendar says it's 2,020 years since he got here. I would at least, if you're going to count time by him, and all the years before him are called all the years before him, I would just investigate a person like that. Mm. Time itself before Christ he shows up, year of our Lord. The atheists hate that, but the bottom line is, even the, I, I had Dan get Alexa, that woman that knows everything on the internet. <laughs> Dan got on, I said, ask her what year is it in red China. And Dan Alexa. said, do what? 
I said, ask that girl that knows everything on the internet, what year is it in China? He said, Alexa, what year is it in red China? She said, 2020. I said, got it. I said, ask her what year is it in Russia? She said, what year is it, Alexa, in Russia? Oh, Alexa says, 2020. I said, what about North Korea? What year is it, North Korea, Alexa? 2020. I said, that pretty well solves the deal. We're all counting time by Jesus. I would, I would think we would at least investigate that person. But here we sit, and most people say, good job, blah, blah, my face. I'm like, Smartest woman in the world. You're counting time by him, but you don't want to maybe check out and see what he had to say? Are you nuts? Today's episode is brought to you through the generosity of Waterstone. For nearly 40 years, Waterstone has assisted givers in supporting their favorite charities, like Promise Keepers, by crafting customized, innovative giving solutions. Waterstone gift strategists stand ready to create your personalized charitable plan, utilizing business interests, real estate, appreciated assets, charitable trusts, giving funds, and more. These donor-specific giving strategies allow givers to bypass capital gains taxes, receive a fair market value charitable deduction, and have tax-free growth for years to come. Prioritize income, minimize taxes, and optimize your giving with Waterstone. Find out how to give and receive the most from your assets by visiting www.waterstone.org. And now, back to today's show. Alan, Phil Robertson, and I having a discussion about the Lord, about grace, about truth, and, and really just giving their raw stories. Your life was completely transformed the day you were saved. But Al, you have a different story. It was more of a zigzag. I'm, I'm zigzagging for the first few years. I'm trying to learn how to trust me mm. as far as I can see me. <laughs> I'm trying to participate in agape love that I've never experienced before, love your neighbor. You're like, what, do, do what? And I, I, I wrestle with those things for a few years, and I still have uh, room to improve, but I'm way, the, the, the crooks are not as, the, the, the deviation is not near like it was Which is the it, first five years. It's an years, interesting point, years. Dad, because, you know, somebody look at Dad and they think, oh, man. You know, a young man maybe is listening to our podcast and they're like, you know, feels like Mount Rushmore, you know, in their minds. Yeah. But everybody has we need a lot of rock to get that beard down the whole Mount Rushmore. <laughs> well, when, really when he takes a picture. People need to understand the reason Jesus is mediating for us and the blood is there to remove us of any sin we'll ever commit. It, we're under grace here, not law. Where one, when you die and without Jesus, okay, law brought you down. But Jesus is there saying, I have to be here to remove your future sins. Get up. Get up. I don't hold it against you. Get up. Get up. Get up. It yep. took me a while to learn that. Out. Well, and I think to the point is everybody has you know weaknesses that we do carry into our Christian walk. Everybody does. And so there's no perfect man except for Christ. And so um, dad's being honest because, I mean, the, the, the mistrust in him – was born out of not being able to trust himself. And, and so we're viewed as perfect by right. God because we're in Jesus, exactly but right. it took me a while to really grasp that to say, wait a minute, I'm in a position where there is no sin in Jesus. 
God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It took me a while to figure that so one out. So I think it's an encouragement, though, even to your, your Promise Keeper audience because we all come in to Christ obviously flawed, and the, and the, the worst time we spend in the world is the harder time to sort of – overcome, you know, these things that get put in us. And, and that's what happens with the evil one. So in my case, I was really a good kid, kind of very responsible, like through this whole period of time when dad was off the rails, I was just a young boy, but that mom depended on heavily to help her with the kids because dad's not there. So my role early on became sort of a care taker mentality and it was mainly for mom's sake and so that's why we've always been so close the problem for me was you live through that period of time thinking you're like protected or you know god must have his hand on me because i even there was a, a preacher that lived up the street and he and his wife sort of took me in at like four or five years old and because they just saw an opportunity you know and I, i'm so appreciative they did they were older they were in their 70s so i was like their grandson and they would take me, and I, I got to learn about the Bible, and, and this blind, she was blind. She taught me all this Bible. Yeah, but, that lady was a blind woman. Yeah, she was blind. And uh, she had been blind since she was 12 years old. Now she's like 75. And I thought she was a superhero because she knew all the words to every song. She knew the she could read her Bible you know, just from memory, kind of like Dad does, because she spent so much time in it. And so she'd tell me all these stories, and she'd hear me as soon as my foot would hit the porch. And I thought, man, she's got like super hearing. Well, I didn't know that. If somebody was blind, their hearing was increased. But so I thought she was like a, an angel or something. But so I had all these influences in my life. She was an angel. Huh? She was, and she looked out for me. So you know, when we moved to the bar and that whole thing was going on, they were still coming to get me. They'd take me, you know, with them to meet. And so all these, so these good things are happening, and I was favored and protected. But what I didn't realize, you're always affected in a home, which is a good motivation, I think, for parents to to live the right way. Because if you don't. You're impacting your family in a negative way. If you're if you're not a believer, if you if if you're living in some sinful, destructive way, even your language. Oh yeah, absolutely. So all that matters. So I didn't realize that till I got to about fourteen. Dad is now doing great. We're we're at this great church here in West Monroe. I'm in the youth group. I mean, it seemed like it should just take off. Like this this could be the best time of my life. But instead. I don't know. I don't know what triggered, you know, what happens in a person's heart and mind. But when you kind of become aware, and for me, it was 14. I mean, I remember it well. I think puberty might have had something to do with it. it. I think it did. And, and, of course, you know, I was a bit of a I was a bit of a ladies' man, you know, back in the day. The evil one <laughs> paid you a visit, Al. He did. And it started with a girl. And then it just led into a secret life. And so I was like a lot of teenagers spread around a lot of churches in America. You know, Sunday and Wednesday, I had the look. You know, I sang the songs, I knew the stuff, but I was a double secret agent. That's what I was. Because I was there, but I was really working for the other side. The problem with being a double secret agent is at some point, your two lives are going to collide. You know, you, you can't, Jesus said you can't serve two masters. So if I'm really, my heart's really with the evil one, I can make it look good for a while, but sooner or later, the truth's coming. Because the, the evil one, what he loves to do more than anything else is rule your life because you let him, and then expose you at the worst possible time. I mean, it's almost just like a sick joke. Mm. I mean, because how many times do you not see that in people's lives? I oh. mean, you're under his control, Thousands. But, but you're hiding it, and then all of a sudden you're just exposed. You know, we, we, you talked about earlier some of the, 
men that I love and respect, and it just breaks my heart when they've had this whole secret life going up front. They're like, hey, we're leading. Some co- of these well-known pastors. Exactly. We're leading universities. We're doing this. We're doing that. But the evil one's got them. And then he's going to expose them at the worst possible time. So that's what happened to me. And so dad, of all people, who had had his conversion moment, and we're probably, I'm about, I'm 17. I just graduated high school. Um, I was actually 16 when I graduated because unlike dad, I was more of an A minus man instead of a C plus man. So not to brag dad, but so, so dad, (laughs) so dad, finally my lifestyle, you know, it comes out. I mean, it's just, you can't hide it forever. Too many trails of bad things and, you know, beer bottles in the back of cars and things I could explain away for a while because mom and dad really didn't want to think I was down this road, but I was. So dad, so we're seven years removed from his conversion. He sets me, I'll never forget it. He sits me down in his his blue Chevrolet pickup truck. And he said, Al, you know, there's no doubt about it. Because I had a girlfriend's dad come down and, you know, con- uh, saying that I was having sex with his daughter, which was true, which I lied about, you know. So now p- other people are confronting them over this person I've become. And so dad finally just says, Al, you can't, you know, you just can't stay here and live this way. I, I want you to do the right thing. I want you to turn. But as I explained earlier, I, my heart wasn't ready. I just wasn't there yet. And so even with dad's admonishment and he, he did it. I felt like lovingly it wasn't like he was just berating me. He was like, you know, you've watched my life, you know, it's terrible. You know, you don't want to do this, you know, but you know, I was just like him. I was just stubborn. And I was just like when Bill Smith talked to him that time in the bar, I just wasn't ready. And so he said, you can stay or you can go. You know, you're out of high school now. It's your choice. And so I packed my crap up and headed south. You know, went to New Orleans. I had a, my aunt lived down there. So I just went into full blown debauchery. You know, if you're going to go like sow your wild oats, New Orleans is the place for you. Mm-hmm. But it's also a place of extreme danger because down there, people don't play around. I mean, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll hurt you. And so from 17 to 18, I was telling everybody I was 21. I had a fake license and I was, I was the Don Juan of the of the place I worked was the hospital, and you know I'm sleeping with these nurses, and I mean I just thought, man, this is I'm in it now. I'm in the full blown lifestyle, until one of those nurses turned out to be married, and she's 26, I'm 18, but telling everybody I'm 21, and she has a 23 year old husband who happened to be a Quaalude dealer. Nice, yeah, and and was and was an informant for the New Orleans Police Department. So he's working behind the scenes with them. Of course, I don't know any of this stuff because she told me that they had been separated for a year. Turns out it was two weeks, which is not really a separation. That's just like a cooling off period. So I go by there one day to, I I felt weird about it. I felt like, you know, it's one of those deals where you start looking over your shoulder Mm. because you think somebody's looking out for it. And he was, he's, he's stalking me as I'm stalking her. And so one sunny Sunday morning, I went by to break it off, really, because I just I had that feeling this something bad's about to happen. My instinct were, was right because when I came out of her apartment, although she convinced me not to break up with her, because uh, women are like that when you're in the mode. Um, I had two flat tires on my car, two. And of course, I get in the car and drive, and didn't realize they were flat till I got down the road just a piece. I'm in Kenner, Louisiana. It's a Sunday morning. I'll never forget it because I worked at night and so did she. So I get out and I come around there. It's like, how did I have two flat tires? I must have run through a construction site or something was my thought. 
So I thought, well, I can change one. I have to call somebody to try to figure out how to do it. So I'm, yeah, I'm 18 years old here. So I start working on the tire, and this guy walks up behind me. And he's, oh, you got a flat tire there, huh? So I looked up at him. I'm down on my knees, you know, taking the tire off. And uh, I said, yeah. And then he keeps talking. But I can tell from the way he's talking, he's getting angry. And, of course, you know how it is. Like, I'm not sure. I've never seen her husband. But inside, it's like danger, danger, danger. Mm -hmm. Well, about that time, he's picked up that crowbar, and he just comes down right across my the back of my neck. And uh, unlike you, Ken, I, I was not much of a fighter. I was more of a lover is how I viewed my <laughs> <laughs> So, so I, I didn't have any skills, and I was a little guy back then. And so we sort of wrestled for a while, and he got a couple of licks in. But he's he wants to kill me. I mean, like, I'm yeah. sleeping with his wife, and he's a, he's an unsavory guy, and so am I. And so I finally break free. Well, I did the only thing I know to do, run for my life, literally. I take off running up the street. <clears throat> he comes behind me. He throws that crowbar. I remember the last thing from him is it hit me right in the middle of the back, but I never stopped. I was pretty fast, especially when your life's on the line. And so he broke off pursuit at some point. I ran a couple of blocks into a little time saver. There's a guy working in there. I was like, you got to call the cop. At this point, I still don't know it's the husband because it was just some guy that he never said anything. No, so for everybody under 35, there was no such thing as cell phones back then. Exactly. They're wondering, why, why didn't you well, just, just call? Yeah, why didn't you call the 911? You're right. So I tell the guy in the store, call the police. There's a madman. He's chasing me. So I, I'm standing behind a thing, and I got a plunger in one hand and a, you know. A plunger? Some, yes, whatever I could find. <laughs> you know. And I'm waiting for this guy because I'm expecting him to come in this store at any minute. So about what seemed like a long time, it was probably just a few minutes, the cop car pulls in. So a guy walks in. The officer, well, I come out to meet him, and he says, he, he says, uh, he says, where's the gun? It's the first thing he said to me. Where's the gun? And I was like, I don't know anything about a gun. There's a crazy man. He's running around the corner. He just tried to, you know, he took my tire to. And so I get in his car. I get in the back seat, and, and we're driving around because we didn't go far, just two blocks. And he was like, where's the gun? He asked me again. And I was like, I, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know about a gun. You know, he didn't have a gun. Well, as we pull it back up, now we got six cop cars, lights are flashing. I mean, we got a full blown, you know, scene here. The guy's in the back of the one of the cars. I see him as we drive by. The girlfriend has come out now. There's people all milling around. We got a scene, crime scene. And my car, he took the crowbar, he went back, he just beat the crap out of my car. I guess what he couldn't do to me, he took out of my poor Monte Carlo. And laying on the on the hood of the car, yeah, you had a '76 Monte Carlo, which I had. Yeah, that was an awesome. That was car. an awesome car. That was a big loss. I, and I had mine all set up with the eight track inside and a big oh. sound system. I mean, it was it was cool. But anyway, so I pull up and there, there's a there's a pistol, a 22 pistol, you know, open car tr chamber open on the hood of my car, and then it hit me. That was my uncle's gun that was in my car. So that's why they kept asking about the gun. So apparently what happened was when I, when he couldn't catch me, he went back, he beat my car up, he got in, he's looking around, he found the gun in the glove box and started heading back down the street. When he gets to the corner, so he's literally now half a block away from where I'm at, the first police car shows up. Mm. So I figure looking well, back. Well, you uh, cut it pretty thin. Uh, and these people are watching this, see, and that, this was witness, eyewitness. So I realized that, I mean, you talk about a flash come over, man, when somebody, when they told me that story, I thought, I was about five minutes from leaving the earth because he walks in that store. He's shooting me dead. Mm -hmm. And so. Well, but, you had a plunger. 
I didn't have so, a plunger. I, I could have been like, you know, Wonder Woman. So when I heard that story, I mean, a pit appeared in the, my stomach, and I just sat there. I was Now I'm in shock. You know, I'm, I'm bewildered. Well, the cops are coming by, and most of them are just old rough guys, and there's no love for Al because I'm sleeping with the guy's <laughs> wife. You know what I'm saying? Right. And then I find out later he's working for the cop. So I'm realizing nothing's ever coming of this. You know, it's not like we're going to wind up in court somewhere because this guy took a tire tool to this punk, whether he went to the gun or not. So now I'm starting to realize that, man, you're alone in this. So the girl comes over. I thought you were 21. I was like, you know, <laughs> I'm not ready to deal with you. And so, you know, like, of course, we are all liars here. You know, yeah. we found that out, right? <laughs> and so she thought I was 21. I thought you weren't married, you know, anymore. So, so we get down to this moment. And everybody leaves except for one guy, one one police officer. And he was actually the guy that was taking pictures of the thing, I guess in case there really ever was anything that come of it. And he he was a believer. And so he sat down next to me. I was just sitting there on the curb. My, my clothes are torn. I got some bloody elbows and, you know, blood going. And, and he just started talking to me, you know. I mean, he could see I was in shock, but he had compassion, you know. And I look back on it, and you being a police officer can appreciate this. I mean, he saw me at my worst moment of my life. It was in that moment sitting there. And so what most people, most of those officers left because it was like, uh, whatever. I'm a, you know, I got work to do. But he saw an opportunity. And so he just started talking to me and started asking me questions where I was from. I obviously wasn't from around here. You know, you don't fit into this lifestyle. You know, he saw that. And so I was amazed because in the more he taught, the more it just sort of unfolded all this stuff I had pent up, you know. And so I started just crying, you know, it was just I was it was uncontrollable. And so I realized now looking back, that was my brokenness moment. That's the moment dad had, mm. you know, when we were gone. That was my moment because, I again, I'm alone now. You know, this guy just tried to kill me. It was traumatic. I'm sleeping with this guy's wife. I'm like, well, who are you? What, what so are you? you pull back up in the yard. Well, first, so first, first I went and turned in my notice. And for the next two weeks, because I was responsible, the next two weeks I'm looking over my shoulder like nobody's business. Because right. I'm thinking this guy's going to try to kill me again. And I, I made up a speech. I was just like the kid in Luke 15. I made up a speech. I was going to come home. I was going to kind of throw myself on the mercy. Luke 15 is the story of the parable, uh, the prodigal son. Prodigal son, that's right. And so the guy, you know, he's in the pig pen in a faraway land, and that's exactly where I was in New Orleans. I was literally in the pig pen. And this guy, this kid, he thinks in his mind, you know what, I'm just going to go back to my home and throw myself on the mercy of my dad, and hopefully he'll let me work it out, which is exactly what I thought. So when I pull up at the house, mom and dad know I'm coming home, and I had my speech worked out. You know, I, I just want to work here, prove myself, you know, that I, that, I'm, that I really want to change. But mom and dad came out to meet me. By the way, just like the father does in Luke 15 in that parable, they met me halfway. They didn't even wait for me to come inside and have that extra 150 walk of shame, you know, 150 foot walk of shame. They met me. Uh, they hugged me. There were tears. And then dad just said, welcome home, man. We got duck calls to build. Let's get after this thing. And that was it. That's a powerful oh, scene. It, and it really happened. And so I, I tell people when I tell my story, I always said that night we had the we killed the fattened catfish had a celebration, <laughs> <laughs> which in the story they had the fattened cat. But we had a fattened catfish in celebration because the lost son had returned. And, I, and what was amazing was just like that, and I struggled early. I knew women were a big problem, and it was, it was me. It wasn't them. 
But I just thought, you know what? Maybe maybe Paul had this thing right. I'm just going to go it alone. Well, I realized two months in, that wasn't my gift. And so that's what connected me back to Lisa, who was a girl I'd broken her heart, you know, which is the rest of our story. But from the, been now been your wife for how many years? 36. We just celebrated 36 years. How many kids? We have two daughters and six grandkids. And everybody lives. You saw my setup. We, we live in a compound together. But, you know, what happened was from that day forward, there's no doubt about it, my life changed. And all that stuff that God had put in me early by the preacher and his wife and the, and the protection and the favor, it just flourished back out. And so when I got into ministry, it was just natural for me. But now I had taken away any sort of judgmental part like that. I had been broken. I realized what it was like. And so. Well, from a heathen to preacher. Well, that's right. And then my, my job, Ken, at our church, I felt like as a prodigal who came home, I felt like my role was to be a part of a church that felt like anybody could come home here. Mm-hmm. and find Christ. And there, there would be no one to judge you. There would be no rocks thrown. In fact, we welcome people with problems because we all have problems. I think all preachers need to uh, inform whoever's listening from time to time that they were sinful men before they ran up on Jesus. Yeah. I, I would think that people would pay more attention if you pretty well give them the your sinful life beforehand, right on the front end. Yeah, you know what I'm saying. Well, and the reason why is because Revelation twelve eleven says the power to overcome the evil one is the blood of the Lamb, the word of your testimony, and the fact that you wouldn't love this life so much that you would shrink back even from death. Yep. And so you look at those three factors, and you're right. The power of what Jesus does, and, and the only way you can do that is be authentic. Plus, that way too, that if they do look back in your archives and see what a sinful man you were, I would have think you'd be on stronger ground if you'd already told them who you used to be mm-hmm. and the things you did. You see what I'm saying? Just you know, get it out in the open. To look at your story, and I have a question for you, Phil. In your, your story, you were raised by a godly man who gave you Scripture and you still fell away. And, mm-hmm. and one of the things that Satan wants to do is to tell you, oh, no, you screwed up. You, you can't be of use anymore. And, right. and, and the story of the prodigal son is not the story of an unbeliever. It's the story of a believer. It is a son who falls away, rejects what God gave him, yep. and comes back. And what's the key? Repent and turn back to Christ. And when you do, you'll find out he was running towards you the whole time. But he's waiting for you to repent first. He's, right. he's not going to. That prodigal son didn't realize his daddy was waiting out there for him every day. His daddy didn't go get him. He waited right. for him just like your dad did. Well, you know what's ironic about it? The 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 prodigal son parable was was taught by Jesus and written down, not even about the younger brother, even though that's the amazing part. It was really written to the older brother who judged his brother. Because you know, it starts out saying, Who is this man who eats with sinners? So the the actual parable was that's written right. for the guy that's the judger of people. And and we don't know what happened happened to the older brother. No. But you know, if you read that Luke 15, by the way, for your listeners, I mean that's an incredible story. But it's a story of grace, but it's a story of people who don't want to accept people that they think are just too bad. The older yeah. brother who's mad that... He's that mad. The There's a celebration. He's him. went and squandered That's everything, right. you know. So, anyway. Phil, you know, a lot of dads are listening to this, and, you know, you had two moments there that were substantial. The, the first one was to take tough love with your son. So many of us would have been tempted to just, well, keep on loving him, keep on loving him, which ain't love. It's just uh, weakness, yeah. right? So you, you took that tough stance and, and let him run off and, and do his nonsense. 
And then the second thing is when you knew, because Al had called Miss Kay, and so you knew he was coming, and I'm sure you had to process, well, how exactly am I going to handle this situation when my son comes mm-hmm. home? Because what most young people listening don't realize is you don't get a handbook when you're a parent. You're, you're going through this and figuring right. it out as you go. How, how was that for you, both those moments? Because of my own background, I was more than willing to say, I knew for him just to drive up in the yard and say, I'm done with that. Well, I, I thought about my own moment when I said, I'm done with that. So I just looked at it without hesitation. I said, oh, I don't know, you know, whether he's really going to live right. The youngest one, Jep, he started popping a few pills, running with the wrong crowd. And in his case, Al, Jason, the second son, Willie, the third son, Miss Kay and I, we, we, I don't think we told him what was going down, but we rigged it up to where we got him. It was him an down. intervention. Yeah. We, we, we were going to, we had an intervention with him. And, uh, we all gave him a speech. Miss Kay gave him a speech. I gave him a speech. Al gave him a speech. Jace gave him a speech. And we just went around his brothers, sisters, and mom and dad. And he's seated in a chair. And we're in, have encircled him. So when we got done with the speeches about his lifestyle, he cried. Mm-hmm. And when he when he raised his head up from his tears, his question was, "What took y'all so long?" Really? That's what he said. That's what he said. Remember, Al? I remember it well. He just well. looked up with tears. He said, "What took y'all so long?" Like he makes was me, waiting to makes be, me brings tears to my eyes just thinking too. about it. Oh, I you know when I drove home that he never he he never he repented he did but he was wondering good night y'all going I mean it wasn't like we had to rescue him but right. I guess it was some kind of well he had that pull you know and he was there and so it was funny because in the moment you know we prayed over him and there was some tears shed that day but when we were dri- when I was driving home and I think it because it brought it all back in my life too I just had to pull over up here you know a few miles up the road. And I mean, I wept, you know, over, it, it was joy, but I think it was also just like the whole anguish of my own, you know, teen years, which I so regret giving to the evil one. Cause from 14 to 18, that could have been some of the best years of my life. Oh, I look I, back in my life. I, said, I look at young people I and I, I see them just so excited about the Lord. And I'm just like, man, I gave that away to the evil one. It's still a regret after all these years. And so I think all that, you know, played a factor into to that moment with Jet, which was very powerful. Let me ask you the last question as we wrap up here. It's Phil, you said something that is powerful. Christ took all of our sins upon himself on the cross. Yep. I think what a lot of people in the church are struggling with right now is the idea of cheap grace, which Dietrich Bonhoeffer preached against and yep. so many others. Yeah. Since since Jesus took all of our sins on the cross, then why should we live for him? Why, why don't we just run around and do our own thing and just wait till we go to heaven someday? Yeah. Well, the Apostle Paul, to answer your question with a, with a Bible verse, the law was added so that uh, justice through the disobedient, this is Romans 5, about verse 19, about verse 10 and 11, just as one man, the many were made sinners, Adam, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. The law was added so that the trespass might increase. 
But where sin increased, grace increased all the more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Because a lot of people, they hear the story of Jesus and about grace, and they say, so let me get this right. All my past sins are removed. Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. Boy, isn't that great? And they say, so once I get in Jesus, I can sin all I want to, and he's there to take them away. Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We hear that he's died for our sins, all of them. And we're told, since that's the case, what a merciful thing God has done on your behalf. Die to all that filth that you participated in. Repent. Change the way you live. We were therefore buried with him, the old sinful person, buried with him through baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, here's the kicker. We too may live a new life. If you just, by faith, go to a pool of water and say, well, after this I can sin all I want to because Jesus had just removed them, you've missed the point. If we've been united with him in his death, we'll certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. We know now that our old self was crucified with Jesus so that the body of sin might be rendered powerless. That we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Count yourselves, he goes on to say in verse 11, dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Don't offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness. Rather, offer yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Offer the parts of your body as parts, instruments of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master, which is where I was and I was and you were. You're like, there's a lifestyle change where one is very aware that he uploads the biblical text inside this computer sitting on top of your head. This is the only computer I fool with inside my own head because once uploaded, always recorded. So I take the scriptures and I do something. I, I view them as food, spiritual food, so that I've trained myself, Hebrews chapter 5, to distinguish Good from evil. That's all you, you say. You mean to tell me this whole thing 
in lieu of what I read to you in Romans 6, this whole thing comes down to this right here. Solid foods for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. That's the charge. It's not on Al training me, me training Al, me training you. No, we train ourselves with the help of God's Spirit, and we become more and more and more godly as we walk through. So from 28, Al, I'm now 74. My path was like this the first five years, and then it started to be like this. Now my path is more like this, and ever once in a blue moon, I mean, I haven't said a cuss word in 35 or 40 years. You see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. You said no slips of the tongue? No. You said why? With the help of the scriptures, mm. I've trained myself. It is written. Don't have any filth in my How are you going to point somebody to Jesus when you're sitting there cursing like a sailor? You're like, bad move. You're giving Jesus a bad name. Don't do that. So it's just little bitty things. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of them, well, I have this trouble with cursing and all that. I'm like, man, they haven't been in the faith long enough to train themselves. Because if you think about it, people can holler at you all day long, you say, but until you decide mm -hmm. to turn from sin and die to it, a man quits getting drunk when he's dead. He quits using drugs when he's dead. He quits lying when he's dead. He quits stealing when he's dead. Well, God allows our going down in a pool of water to be that moment. It's a mock death, burial, and resurrection of us. And once we come forth from the tomb, you're like, oh, I've been raised from the dead. Thank you, Lord. And if it doesn't change your mind about how you function, that's why you read through all these texts. All of them say, take the bad things away, take the bad things away, add the good. Take the bad things away, add the good. All the way from drugs to immorality to all of it. It just takes human beings a while to climb out of it. Mm -hmm. There, It's like old habits are hard to break. So answer your question, you say, my answer would be, train yourself to know the difference between good and evil. It's not rocket science. It's really not. It's, it's, it's in a person's heart. They say, you know what? What's riding on this? You say, immortality, mm. eternal life. Al, would you uh, close us up in prayer and just solidify that message and bless the men well, and women who are listening to this? Father, um, what an opportunity just to gather today, as Dad said earlier, is uh, just your sons in this moment of uh, this is our church. You know, the idea of, of people talking about your scripture, uh, how it's impacted their lives, the way you work mightily first mm -hmm. to lead Dad and then later to lead me back. And, uh, and so many others I know that are listening that probably have similar experiences uh, of being away, uh, maybe originally away, but now realize we have such a, a, a wonderful and blessed life in you, an opportunity to be changed in different men and women. And so I just want to pray a special prayer for those that have been listening to what you did in our lives, that if their hearts are being uh, tugged to do the right thing, to finally surrender, to finally give you full reign through Jesus, 
uh, I pray that moment will be today and not to wait and not to wait till you clean yourself up or you get a little bit better or you'll feel like you'll fit in someplace, but just a surrender to let you do what you do best. And that's really what we're all about. And so I pray that prayer today uh, because the, the word of your truth and, and the gospel changing power of what Jesus did for us is where the power is and it's certainly not in us. And so I know anytime that message goes out that there are those who are ready to hear it. And so I know there will be today. And so I pray a, a great prayer of blessing in anticipation of knowing uh, that someone is going to surrender because of what your word does in us. So uh, thank you for Ken. Thank you for PK and, and everything that's going on to try to guide people back to you as a people uh, and as men who are living in America in 2020. We pray a prayer of repentance uh, for our hearts individually and for our nation uh, that we can be more like you. And we pray this prayer in confidence, Father, because we know you are the God that does all things. Through the work of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, we pray today. Amen. 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 Thank you, guys. Thanks for listening to On the Edge Podcast with Ken Harrison. For a lot of you, this is our first time meeting, and I want to tell the men listening about an organization I'm the current chairman of, Promise Keepers. Promise Keepers is an organization founded by Coach Bill McCartney that's led men across the world to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Promise Keepers is calling men back to courageous and bold servant leadership. To learn more and get involved in the mission of Promise Keepers, visit promisekeepers.org. Follow on social media or download the Promise Keepers app on Apple Store or Google Play by searching Promise Keepers. Through the Promise Keepers app, you'll receive access to devotionals, Bible studies, and other great articles and video content, and a community to build friendships, lead your family, and become transformative leaders. See you next time for On the Edge with Ken Harrison.